Welcome to the Scholar's Attic, an audio archive of our tour through world history, specifically the modern age, from the French Revolution to current events of 2021. Welcome to the Attic. Okay, so, To Kill a Mockingbird, number one, who hit on the idea of making Boo Radley come out of the house? Dill. Okay, so the little boy's name is Dill. Now, does Dill regularly live in Maycomb? No. He comes from Mississippi during the summer to stay with family, and then he goes back. Um, so, Dill, interesting character. He's older than Scout, but smaller than her. And he's the one that actually dares Jim to do what? To go you know, touch the house. You know, first he wants him to like knock on the door and then finally he says, okay, uh, if you'll just go up and touch the house, we'll consider it even. Okay. And so, so he's the one that, who gets the ball rolling. Now, um, the story about Boo Radley is that he hasn't been out of the house supposedly in years and years and years. Can somebody give me the nutshell version of why Boo Radley never supposedly comes out of the house. Because Boo Radley, uh, in fact, it's funny, this is like the one time in my life where my all of my high school tutoring that's like literature related, and you guys, like, it's all synchronized. I've got everybody reading To Kill a Mockingbird right now, and it's making my life so much easier. Um, but I actually had a conversation with another student this past week, and they said, I don't get the Boo Radley thing because there's, there's everything going on with the kids, and then Atticus, he's a lawyer, and then there's Boo Radley, and I don't see how these things are connected. I'm like, oh, wait for it. Because you get to the end, you get to the climax of the book, and everything crashes together. Atticus, the court case, the hijinks with the kids, Boo Radley, all of it comes crashing together. So Boo Radley seems like a completely random story plot device at this point. What's the deal with Boo Radley? Can somebody nutshell it for me? Go ahead. So do you want like the real reason or the reason that everyone suspects he doesn't Okay. Well, and it is kind of murky. I mean, no, no spoilers for the end of the book, obviously, if you've gotten that far. But um, give me the nutshell of both. Um, so people think he's like a psycho, and so he just doesn't come out of the house because he's a psycho, and they, yes. his family keeps him locked up. But um, it it kind of turns out that it's more of a his choice type of thing. He's just a shy guy who doesn't want. To be involved with people in any way. Right. Before. Yeah. So, so there's this big question about how much of this is the Radleys keeping Boo at home, and how much of this is Boo just deciding I'm done with humanity, I'm staying home. Um, now, the backstory on this, and Scout actually gives you a, a short description of this that when Boo was in high school. He started running around with sort of a wild crowd. They even oh, would go to the next town to go to the movie theater. Shh, very scandalous. Um, so he was running with sort of a wild crowd, got into some trouble, and his dad came and bailed him out because they were going to send them all to juvie. And I think that was one of my, my Zoom people. 
um, they were going to send them all to juvie. Mr. Radley basically bailed Boo out and said, okay, I'm going to take him home. He will never bother anybody or break the law again. He took him home, and since that time, supposedly, no one has seen Boo Radley leave the house. And this is where we get sort of the mythos of, well, they've got him chained to the bed. They've got him locked in the bedroom. Um, he's, he's psychotic. He's dangerous. And see, this actually plays into number four on the pop quiz. Why do the children refuse to eat the pecans that fall into the schoolyard that come from the Radley trees? Yeah, the, the rumor in the schoolyard is that the pecans are poisoned, that Boo Radley has poisoned the pecans. So even though, and we see this as we get a glimpse of a day in the life with Scout at school, some of these kids do not know where their next meal is coming from. This is at the height of the depression. Some of these kids do not have enough food to put on their tables. They could satisfy some of those hunger pangs by eating the pecans that have fallen into the schoolyard. They will not touch them because it was common knowledge, quote unquote, among the kids that Radley pecans are poisoned. So nobody touches them. They're just there. They're like rocks in the schoolyard. Nobody messes with them. So there are all of these rumors going around. Okay, somebody else tell me something else about the rumors concerning Boo Radley. What are some of the other rumors they tell about Boo Radley? There, there's a bunch of them. You can just sort of... One of them kind of ties into number two, mm -hmm. that he comes out and watches people while they sleep. Okay, yes. Yes, yeah, so there's that rumor going around that he does come out at night, and then if you wake up in the middle of the night, you might see him staring in at your window. That's not creepy at all. <laughs> you know, that would freak out any kid. And a lot of these stories are circulating among the children, and they're telling these stories to sort of freak each other out. Um, uh, there's also the story that um, uh, one day Boo was cutting... Um, things out of the newspaper for his scrapbook. His father walked by and he just stabbed his father in the leg with the scissors, wiped the blood off of on his patents and went back to snipping articles from the newspaper. Well, you know, that's comforting too. Um, and so there's this huge mythos surrounding Boo Radley. Now, Boo Radley does sometimes come out of the house, but maybe not in the way or to do the kind of things that the rumors indicate. What are some of the hints that Boo Radley does sometime come out of the house? There's some candy in the tree for kids. Yes, somebody is leaving presents in the knot hole in the tree for Jim and Scout. And, you know, you, you have to read through, like, the, the, the whole scenario to understand that they're really the only kids walking by the tree. And so there's chewing gum being left. What other presents are left in the, the knot hole? A watch. Is yeah. there a knife or something? Yeah, like, like an old knife. You know, there's, an, I think, an Indian head penny. Two. Two of them. You know, one for each kid. And then what happens with the knot hole? Like, the, there ends up being this kind of exchange between the kids and their anonymous benefactor. And then one day, what? Um, it's filled with concrete. It's filled with concrete. Who filled up the knot hole with concrete? Okay. Nathan Radley. Yeah, it's Nathan Radley. This is the older brother. See, the dad 
has died. And so now Nathan Radley, the brother, has come home to do whatever it is that the Radleys do to make money. And he fills up the knot hole with concrete. Now, this is one of those things that if, if you're not really paying attention to the flow of the story, and, and it's, it's a more fluid story, more so than, say, Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn, where you have all these hijinks, and it's like one chapter, one adventure. You know, one chapter, Pinchbug and his prey. Uh, you know, one chapter, the boys are mistaken as dead, and they come home to their own funeral. One chapter, you know, the whitewashing defense incident. And, and they're very encapsulated. With To Kill a Mockingbird, like the chapter titles, they, there are none. And the, the story is very fluid and you get what's happening, but then you also get these little back pieces of history of where people came from or why they're so prejudiced, okay? So, um, when, when Nathan Radley fills up the knot hole with concrete, Jim asks him why. What was the reason that Nathan gave for filling, for plugging the hole with concrete? Tree yeah, he said that the tree was dying. And apparently back in the day, this is one of the things you did. I'm not really sure why. I haven't researched that one yet. But apparently you plugged the hole with concrete, and especially if the tree was dying. But what's the problem there? The tree is not dying. So it is never explicitly stated. This is though that whole inferring thing that we ask you to do sometimes. Why would he plug up the hole if the tree was not dying? He figured out what Boo was giving him presents. Yeah, he wanted to put a stop to the presents. So this tells us that somewhere in the middle is the actual truth. Boo could probably leave the house whenever he wants, Obviously, he does, but there's still this little control tug of war going on at home, but now instead of Boo and his dad, it's between Boo and his brother, who is the respectable businessman going to work every day. Um, other uh, th symptoms that Boo Radley actually leaves the house. He's leaving presents in the tree knot hole. Um, and and that's I, I eliminate the ending of the book if anybody's gotten that far. Keep it to the front half of the book. But what else? Uh, there, I think there was one part where he put like a blanket on the couch. Yes. Okay. That's where the fire comes in. Whose house caught fire? This is number seven. Miss Maudie. Miss Maudie. This is one of the neighbors. And if you couldn't remember her name, and you just said, you know, the the next door, the across the street neighbor, you know. That's fine, but one of the neighbors, this is Miss Maudie, her house burns to the ground in the middle of the night, and in order to keep the children safe, Atticus tells them to stand across the street by the Radley Gate. And by the time all the excitement dies down, they realize that Scout has a blanket around her shoulders. And they didn't bring it, and they didn't go home to get it, and it's Jim who figures out that is like, well, wait a minute, if Nathan Radley was helping salvage stuff from the fire, which he was, then it had to be Boo. Boo was the one who had to drape the, the blanket over uh, Scout's shoulders while they're shivering there in a you know, winter night watching this house burn. Um, 
The incident with the rabid dog, one of the most interesting episodes in the entire book. What is it that the Finch children learn about their father during this episode? They discover that he is a very good shot. Very good shot, to the point that uh, one of the other adults slips up and calls him by his old nickname, One Shot Finch. And this is even more ironic when you consider a fact that's laid down early on in the book, and that is, is that he's nearly blind in one eye. So uh, he, he doesn't see well to begin with. He's doing most of his reading, most of everything with just one eye. But you get down to that one scene, and this is one of those moments that I think the movie uh, portrays very, very well. You know, Gregory Peck, you know, he takes off the glasses, and, you know, I think he actually sort of tosses them to the side at one point, and he, he just levels up, and boom, dog's dead. Okay, so... The thing that's so ironic about that particular scene is the lead up to it in which Jim and Scout have this general opinion of their father that he's what? Dull. Dull, old, boring, you know, because other fathers, they're butchers, they're farmers. They, you know, run the general store. They do interesting, cool things. And their father is a lawyer. He reads a lot and he talks a lot. Like, what's, what's the excitement in that? Also, their father is a lot older than the other parents of the children at the school. So whenever there are these school gatherings, Atticus is technically old enough to be the dad of most of the parents there. He's close to 50 or around 50 at the beginning of the book, but when you consider the early age that most people got married back in the day, 18, 19, 20 years old, then yeah, at 50, he should have children in their 20s, not in grade school. So several things about this uh, that's a little unusual. What's also unusual about the way Jim and Scout respond to their father? Yes, it's like the one other book besides Voyage of the Dawn Treader where you have a, a main character who does not refer to their parent as mom or dad, but Harold and Alberta, or in this case, Atticus. They call him Atticus, and he never corrects them on this. I think there's like one part of the book where Scout maybe calls him dad. That's like during a very, like a very emotional, very stressful, uh, yeah, emotional, stressful moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see what else. And we've talked about Calpurnia, we've talked about Miss Maudie. Okay, number eight. This is the thing that dominates the center part of the book. What is it that causes Maycomb attitudes toward Atticus Finch to change radically? There are a few people that changes their attitudes radically for the better, but most of them for the worse. What's happening here? There's a trial going on. And what's happening with this court trial? There is an accused, and what is he accused of? Because he's a black man and he was accused of rape. Okay, a black man accused of raping a white woman, and it all comes down to a situation of he said, she said, and Atticus 
has stepped up to do what? Defend the black man. And this is what puts him on the wrong side of a lot of Maycomb families who have very clear prejudices. And some of them are just assuming things. Some of them, well, again, no spoilers there in case you haven't gotten that far into it. But here's the, the bottom line on this. Pay attention to the court case. Pay attention to the Boo Radley thread, um, but also just soak in the overall atmosphere of the community. Like I said, this is a book that it's, it's harder to chunk it into episodes the way you can say anything by Mark Twain. Um, and it's because there's a lot of fluid back and forth. So you not only get uh, the Finches going to Finches Landing, to visit family and um, and that's where you see one of these fights that Scout gets into because even her cousin is talking smack about Atticus because he's defending this black man and and this is when the n-word gets thrown around some um, of course I love how Atticus handles that whenever Scout starts throwing it back at him and he's like look you know, and, and he mixes it pretty quickly, but he does it in an interesting way. But even as they're talking about visiting family at Finch's Landing, you're getting a little bit of the backstory because the Finches used to be slaveholders. Um, and they've gone from being a slaveholding family to, at least as far as Atticus is, is concerned, a family that, you know, they, they tried to be, you know, blind to color in the eyes of the law and defend what's right, even if it means defending the black man in the situation. And so this court case really takes up the center part of the book, and it is part of why we get this sort of cascade failure, if you will, of several situations crashing together in the climax of the book. Now, the other family, the white family that figures prominently into this court case is the Ewell family. Can anybody tell me anything about the Ewells? They live in a They basically live in a dump. And they, yeah, go ahead. The kids only go to one day of school and then they never come back. <laughs> one day of school and then they never come back. And uh, these are also people who... What is their opinion of the law? It is made for everyone but them. Everyone but them. They just do what they want. They do as they please. And if you try to call them out on it, you're going to get a fight. And probably a very ugly fight at that. So you've got the Yules on one side. You've got Tom Robinson on the other, the accused black man. You've got Atticus Finch defending Tom Robinson against the Ewells. And the Ewells have their own history going on. So that's an interesting dynamic. Now, last thing before we move on to other scholarly pursuits, there is the title of the book itself. If you have gotten to, let's see, this is my green bookmark. Um, I believe it's near the beginning of chapter 10 is where the characters actually unpack the meaning behind the phrase to kill a mockingbird. 
It is a sin to kill a mockingbird, is what the characters say. And Scout actually calls them out on it. They want to know, she wants to know why. Because um, the, the context there is that Jim gets an air rifle. And, of course, this is before the incident with the dog. And it just says, Atticus wasn't interested in guns. But he did tell Jim, I'd rather you shot at tin cans in the backyard, but I know you'll go after birds. Shoot all the blue jays you want if you can hit them. But remember, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. That was the only time I ever heard Atticus say it was a sin to do something. And I asked Miss Maudie about it. Your father's right, she said. Mockingbirds don't do one thing but make music for us to enjoy. They don't eat up people's gardens. They don't nest in corn cribs. They don't do one thing but sing their hearts out for us. That's why it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. Okay, so that's the story behind the title. Now, here's the big question. And there's actually more than one answer. And I don't want you to try to answer me now. But this is something that you should be able to answer by the time you get to the end of the book. Who is the mockingbird in this story? I make the case that there's three mockingbirds in this story. Um, but who I would say is the mockingbird depends on which section of the book I'm in. Okay? So a mockingbird in terms of the human characters in the story, this is the innocent. The innocent marked for slaughter or for persecution or for whatever. Um, for, for some kind of intense ill treatment. I maintain that there are three mockingbirds. Most literature teachers will tell you to pick one uh, who is the mockingbird in the story. There's probably one who is more clear in a way the best example of this than the others. But again, I think you can make a case for at least three characters who is a mockingbird or a type of mockingbird in this story. So keep that in the back of your mind as you read through the rest. It's really a very riveting read. Um, if, if somebody hasn't um, gotten that far into the book yet, um, please give it more than the first chapter. I know that the first chapter begins with a lot of backstory and, and just sort of, you know, yammering that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. I feel like the opening pages of To Kill a Mockingbird are kind of like the opening pages of The Great Gatsby. They actually make more sense once you get to the end of the book and go back and reread the first couple pages and you're like, oh, that's why they said such and such. So, I hope you're enjoying the book. It's one of my favorites. I know I say that about a lot of books, but I have a lot of favorites. That wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.